Thank you, Well, Well, can you turn to Genesis chapter 2, please, as we continue our series called Beginnings. Our series in Genesis 1 through 11. So today we're going to be doing Genesis 2, 18 through 25, in a sermon entitled, The First Wedding. So as you turn there, I have a few questions for you, a few scenarios to present to you this morning for you to think about as we go into this sermon and text this morning. What do you say to a friend who you learn is living with his girlfriend? And you gently ask that friend, any plans to get married? And your friend says this to you. Well, we're living together. I mean, we're committed to one another. I mean, we love one another. In our hearts, you could say we're married. Then upon further reflection, he says, you know, plus 50% of marriages end in divorce. By any standard, that is a failed and outdated institution, is it not? Scenario number two, you're speaking with a coworker. He says to you, well, I think it's good and right. If a man wants to marry a man or a woman wants to marry a woman, who am I to say otherwise? Who they can and cannot marry? What do you say? How do you relate to that person? Third scenario, you're talking with your neighbor, talking about that reality TV show, that polygamist reality TV show called Five Wives. And he's like, yeah, I saw it, you know, a little crazy, but I mean, more power to him. I mean, you know, if they're all happy and they're all consenting adults, what's the harm? What's the harm? Well, church, I think as you know, these are not just hypothetical questions or scenarios. It's likely you have encountered such questions or comments. Maybe you even made them yourself. So church, here's the question. Is there, is there any good reason beyond tradition to get married and to stay married? And if so, do we have a biblical warrant for making the claim that marriage is a union between one man and one woman? And if so, where do we go in the Bible to show that marriage is not just a good idea, but it's God's idea? Welcome to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. For here we find the first wedding. And it's here that we find, up on the screen here, our main theme for this morning. We find God's covenant of marriage is God's provision and plan. Just want to say a few words before we get started here. I realize here in this congregation, we have singles, we have marrieds. We have those who are married. We have those who are widowed. We have those who are divorced. I don't know if God has marriage in the future for each and every one of you. But I believe this morning God does have encouragement for you. Why? Because as we'll learn this morning, marriage is not ultimate. Christ is. And may we see that clearly 
this morning. And may this text help us see that as well. So with that in mind, let's now read Genesis 2, starting with verse 18, where we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we confess this morning that we need your word. We need your revelation to think rightly. So, Lord, I ask that you would equip each and every one of us this morning. Would you speak to us through your word? Not that we could win debates, but that we could live in the good of that which you have created for your people, we pray. Amen. Well, our narrative this morning continues where we left off last week, Genesis 2, which is really, if you recall, a replay of creation. But in this replay of creation, we're learning a few surprising details that we didn't have in Genesis 1. As we're taken behind the scenes of day 6, the creation of mankind. Adam has been created, has been placed, as you know, in the garden. And he's living in God's place. He's living under God's rule and blessing. But there is a problem. What do you think about? There is a problem in paradise. And it's not a small problem. Here's the problem. Adam is alone. Our first point, Adam's problem. He is alone. And it's here in Genesis 2, we get to hear God speak. Or to recall, I think it was Al's analogy last week, we get to hear God mic'd up, okay? As he speaks for the first time here in Genesis 2. And what does God say? He says this, it is not good. Oh, the creation, Genesis 1, of all the living creatures was good. The creation of man was very good. But the situation, this is not good. What's not good? Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Adam is all alone at home in the garden. Adam is all alone in his work to cultivate and to guard or to keep the garden. Adam needs a helper. In other words, he has no companion and he has no partner 
to do what God has called him to do back in chapter 2, verse 15. 15, excuse me. But there's also another unstated problem here. Adam doesn't even know of his need, or at least he's not fully aware of it. So here in our passage, God helps Adam by showing him his need. How? By bringing the animals, the birds and the beast to Adam. Look again at verses 19 and 20. Let's read it again. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Here we go again. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. Catch this, fit for him. Just about every commentator will acknowledge the significance of Adam naming the animals. That communicates an authority over Adam is naming the animals. And as such, he is showing his dominion over the animals. He is doing what God has called him to do. But I believe God has another agenda as well for Adam in doing this. God wanted Adam to observe the animals and that which God had created. God wanted Adam to notice something. He wanted Adam to notice the difference between him and all other living creatures. And I believe God did this to reinforce the point that Adam was alone. He was alone as the pinnacle of God's creation, alone as one who had uniquely made in God's image, different from all other creatures. And if the animals did parade by him, I don't know quite how God brought the animals to him, but you know, if he brought them two by two, kind of like the ark, you know, I don't know. Adam was probably saying something else as well. Hey, wait a sec. All these animals, they have partners. They have companions. What about me? Verse 20, but for Adam, oh, there was not found a helper fit for him. See, now animals could be some help to Adam, right? some beasts of burden to help with his labor, to till the garden, to work it? Sure. But they weren't fit for him. This phrase means they were not a match. They did not complement him as his equal. See, Adam needed a true helper that would complement him and who would be his equal. He didn't need another man who was just like him. This is important. But through a woman, and only through a woman, could Adam image in relationship the triune God. Let me explain that. Okay, that's that's heady stuff. Let me explain. We know that God is three in one, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Who are in perfect relationship. Equal, but differing in their roles and personhood. That's what we call the Trinity. That is the God of God. We worship. Only through a woman could Adam image a triune God, right? Could Adam have a partner who was equal to him, but different in personhood and role as well? A woman. Someone who could not only help him in the garden, sure, provide physical support, but also friendship and companionship, but could also populate the garden. There'd be a lot of little Adam and Eve's as well thus fulfilling the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. I hope that's obvious to you. Adam needed a woman, 
biologically distinct in the reproductive manner to be able to populate the garden which he is to keep and to work. But man needed something more than just someone for procreation and partnership in working the garden. Man needed help in guarding the garden as well. That word in the ESV is keep. It's also in the Hebrew. It could be guard or to provide a hedge around. Adam needed help in guarding the garden. What are we talking about here? We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the evil serpent, Satan, who will be introduced to you in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter three. I wish I could develop this point right now, but this is not a marriage seminar. Not gonna do it, okay? But what I want you to see from this text is this. Adam clearly needed a helper that was different from him. Female help that was not just physical, but help that was relational. And I would say as well, emotional and spiritual as well to do the job that God had given him to cultivate, to work, and yes, to guard or to keep the garden. I hope it's... I hope it's clear to you, but I just want to reinforce this point. The fact that this woman was to be a helper does not in any way communicate somehow that the woman was inferior. You can even argue quite the opposite. Because of Adam's inadequacy, not Eve's inferiority, God gave Adam a helper. In fact, 16 and 19 times, that word for helper in the Hebrew, refers to God himself. He's the helper. In other words, Adam, you need some divine assistance, okay? And I'm going to bring it to you in the form of a woman. And that leads to point two, God's provision, a wife. I'm going to read it again. Verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. You know, I mean, what's going on here? You know, I'll tell you what's going on. God has taken the sole initiative, not just to create a woman, to provide for his need, but to give a woman to Adam and to bring this woman, this wife to Adam. But don't miss the point here. This is God's idea. This is God's doing. Do you see it? And there's something so wonderful and intimate here. Look at verse 22. You see where it says made, right? Taken from the man, he made into a woman. The rib taken from man, he made into a woman. See that word made? The word behind that is built. It's a common Hebrew word, built. God built this woman. He built her, he constructed her, he crafted her. God built the woman from man. Well, man was made from the earth. Woman was built from what? Adam's rib. I love what the author Nancy Gantz says here. Quote, she was not made from the dust of the earth as every other creature but she was made from dust, double refined. I love that, double refined. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? If you're in doubt, just raise boys and girls side by side. 
mean, boys, yeah, they're definitely tough. They're sturdy. They're earthy. But double refined, they are not. And I'm not sure even when they grew up to be men <laughs> that they're double refined either. Such is the nature of man and maleness. But I want to see something else as well. God creates a woman by taking a rib out of Adam. Adam, excuse me, Eve is taken out of Adam's side to be at Adam's side. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know all that God communicated there, but I think that is beautiful. And he gave this helper as a gift to Adam. It's as if he's giving us a graphic picture of the purpose and reason for creating this woman Eve. And I love what we have here in Adam's response when he finally sees the woman. I love this. What's his response? Let me paraphrase. Wow! Amen! Hallelujah! Praise God! Now I see! I mean, literally, I mean, he says, this at last. I mean, can you feel the relief? I mean, he's been looking at these animals all day, coming before him, just queuing up. Because at last, there's joy, there's relief. In fact, this, what he says right here is poetry. The only recorded words that we have of Adam post, excuse me, pre-fall are these words right here. And they're poetry, they're relief, they're joy. This at last. It's what I've been looking for. It's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. And in this joy, in this relief, Adam is recognizing her sameness, right? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And he also is recognizing some beautiful differences as well. He doesn't name her. Oh, there's man take two. There's man redo. There's man reboot. No, there's woman. Because she was taken out of man, and yet she is distinct from man. You see, both in Adam naming her and in the wife Eve coming from him speaks of his loving headship over her and his leadership of her. And so we read in 1 Corinthians, you have to turn this here, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. The head of a wife is her husband. We may ask why. Well, further on, the Apostle Paul says in verses 8 and 9, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Church, I'm not stupid. I know those are fighting words, okay? (laughs) Oh, I realize that. This is a hot topic, okay? And a controversial one at that. But I want to clarify to you what is not being said. First of all, we're talking about marriage. Not every woman is made for every man. Okay, no. This is a wife for a husband in a covenant marriage relationship, which we'll get to in a moment, okay? Secondly, we're not talking about a headship as domination. Oh, there has been as a result of the fall, but not because of God's created order, okay? Nor are we talking about headship as superiority. We're talking about headship as responsibility. Differing roles and responsibilities, but equal in dignity and worth. 
It's true, man was made first. But do you ever think about this? Eve had the honor of being made last. See, if man is the pinnacle of God's creation, woman is the pinnacle of the pinnacle of God's creation. She is the crown of creation, you could say. I believe it's in Proverbs 31, is it not? An excellent wife is what? The crown of her husband. How true it is. And God is giving this dignified crown of creation as a gracious provision and gift to Adam as a wife. He didn't just give her to him, generally speaking. Notice the verbiage here. Now, God personally brought the woman to Adam. Verse 22. In other words, God walked the wedding aisle with Eve and presented her to Adam. What we have here in our text is God creating and presenting a beautiful bride to Adam. And this gift of help, this gift of companionship, catch this, necessitated a oneness between the two. A unity so tight that it required a binding resolve and commitment to one another. Thus, we hear this commitment in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and what? Hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Did you notice the shift that took place here? In verse 24, the narrator, the author, I believe to be Moses, he just created the scene for us, this first wedding. But now he's no longer speaking of just Adam and Eve, right? Adam had no father to leave, okay? (laughs) He was the first, all right? No, he's taking what has happened at this first wedding and extrapolating it down to the centuries as a provision and as a plan for mankind called marriage, as a covenant to be honored. And that leads to the third and final point, God's plan, the covenant of marriage. Let me just say it bluntly. The unity, the fruitfulness, the freedom that God desires for marriage begins with a commitment that goes way beyond shacking up with your girlfriend or boyfriend in an apartment. It begins with a commitment called a covenant. The Hebrew word that we read is translated to hold fast to. You see that? It literally means to be glued to something to stick to something. Friends, this is covenant language. It speaks of the binding commitment between husband and wife. Now, I realize the word covenant is not used here, but I strongly argue that it is implied here. And where it is implied here, I think it is made even more explicit in the New Testament. See, we we come to this creation account as Christians, don't we? We come as the New Testament authors came to this text. Seeing marriage not only as a creation of God, but seeing marriage as a picture of redemption. You see, marriage is not just some crazy, unreachable ideal for those living in paradise. Marriage is a picture of hope for those living in paradise lost. I'm talking about you and me right here. 
Hear the words of Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Perhaps familiar words to you. Let's make the connection here now, okay? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? Paul's quoting what we just read, Genesis 2, 24. But listen to this, this next sentence. This mystery is profound. And I am saying, speaking of this covenant union of one flesh, that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage is patterned after Christ's self-giving covenant commitment to his church. Do you see that? We commit ourselves in marriage because Christ has committed himself to us, his people, his bride, called the church. Our marriage is to tell the story of the gospel. I was reading through my notes of a class I took this past week on Christian ethics, and this is not mine, but I love this phrase. Marriage is an invitation hymn that invites people to the gospel. How does it do that? Well, it does it as husbands play the role of Christ. They're not Christ. They're not the Messiah. The role of Christ, how? In his self-giving, sacrificial love for his bride. And the wife plays the role of the church in her loving response, in the way she responds and loves her husband. In that way, it tells a picture that goes beyond just you and your marriage as husband and wife. It tells a gospel story. Now, I know this is, this is heady stuff, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you heard the words because Paul's he's just admitting it. This mystery is profound. Whoa. And I'm not saying I even get it all right now, okay? I mean, I just see that going, wow. Lord, help me understand what's going on here. This is heady stuff, and, and frankly, marriage is tough stuff. I mean, marriage may have been created in paradise, but I love my wife, but marriage is no paradise, okay? It's not, not in this fallen world. The church, take hope this morning. When Christ was there in the garden, you understand Christ was there in the garden, right? Christ, second person of the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation. We discussed that already. Jesus was there. He was there when Adam was created. I use your imagination a little bit. Could we not say that Christ was there as well when the father walked Eve down the aisle and presented her to Adam? What do you think Christ was thinking at that moment? Well, I venture to say he was thinking about more than just Adam and Eve. I would propose he was thinking about this as well. The day in which Christ would take on flesh and enter into a fallen world. in which he would come as the perfect Adam, or as some would say, the second Adam, Romans 5. Jesus knew full well that Adam, right here in our text, in the garden, would fail to lead his bride and fail to guard the garden. That's next week, Genesis 3. But he also knew that he would come as the perfect Adam, as the one who would succeed where Adam failed. Jesus would come to earth to restore paradise lost by dying on the cross and defeating the ancient crafty 
enemy of our soul, the serpent who is Satan. How? By Christ dying on the cross and paying the penalty for our just sins, for our rebellion against God. And in paying that penalty, defeating the accusations and the lies of the snake, taking away his accusations and his condemnation of you. Because when Christ paid that payment in full, you were forgiven and made clean as his spotless and righteous bride. That, I believe, Christ also had in mind on that special day, that first wedding. What did Jesus do to tell the story? To tell the story of this heroic, self-giving, unifying love and binding intimacy? He chose marriage. He chose marriage. And as such, God has a vested interest in your marriage and our unity. So much so that God is committed to binding husband and wife together as one flesh. Recall the words. Look at them. Verse 24. And they shall become one flesh. See, God doesn't just will that you would become one flesh. No, you know what? He makes sure it happens as well. He actually joins man and woman together. When husband and wife come together sexually, it's more than just a physical act. It is a spiritual binding that occurs that God does. We say, Corey, what does it say that God does this? I want to go to Mark chapter 10, verse 9, where Genesis 2.24 is quoted, but we get this additional added phrase. Mark 10, verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's God that binds a husband and wife together. That's why he hates divorce. It's why he forbids fornication, sex outside of marriage. Every time two people come together sexually, there is a binding, there is an interwovenness that occurs. As Tim Keller speaks about it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, if you join and repeatedly tear apart the one flesh through hooking up and casual sexual encounters, guess what happens? You learn to steel yourself against that oneness which God is creating. You know what else happens? You become numb. Numb. Less able to commit yourself and entrust yourself to another in a covenant relationship. See, the sexual revolution promises freedom, but that's not what we get. Instead, we get bondage. We get numbness. We get shame. Church, that is not God's plan for you. Nor is it's goodness for you. Listen to the final words of our text. They come right after this joining together, verse 24. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I love these words. It's this covenant commitment of marriage designed by God that allows a husband and wife to be completely naked, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually vulnerable with one another in every way. 
where there's full acceptance of one another. See, if we were perfect, we'd never sin. There'd be no shame. There would be nothing to hide. There'd be nothing to fear. But you guys know better. We live in a fallen, sinful world. And we're sinful. But since we are sinners, the only way to be shame-free is to enter into a covenant relationship unconditionally where your sins have been covered by the love of Christ. And it's marriage that is to point to that covenant to which it is to testify. Marriage, as flawed as yours may be, is to point to the perfect bridegroom, Jesus. It's a point to that day when you will see Jesus face to face, sin free and shame free. You know what? On that day, there'll be no more need for marriage. For what marriage was created to point to will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Married friends, marriage isn't the ultimate. Christ is. Single friends, marriage is not the ultimate. Christ is. May the marriages we are building here at Palm Vista point us to that truth and reality. And to those who say, who am I to say what marriage is or is not? May we graciously say, you are right. It is not up to us to say, for God has already said it. Genesis chapter two, verses 18 to 25. Let's pray. Said the worship team, come on up as we sing how rich a treasure we possess in the third song. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is timeless. And so is this pattern an institution of marriage which you've given us until Christ returns. It is your goodness. It is your gospel witness. So Lord, I ask this morning that our marriages would be marked by a unity. Our marriages would be marked by a fidelity. A one fleshness that would point to you, O Christ, and your covenant commitment to your bride. Oh Lord, do that work in our marriages. And for those who are not married, help them to anticipate the day when they will meet their bridegroom face to face. And while here on earth, may they be a resource and a help to build these godly marriages and families here at Palm Vista. By your grace, we pray. Amen. 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 Let us sing and let us, let us say amen to what we just heard. Let us treasure, let us rejoice in Christ, our bridegroom that we're going to sing about. At the end, let us say amen. You're affirming what you've just heard. And now we're going to do it through song. Thanks, guys.